Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called Nuance and Respectful Disagreement with Patrick Mason. Welcome back to the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. I have a very special guest today, and I'm really excited for this chat. I do want to uh, make a quick disclaimer. Just recovering from a pretty bad cold, so my voice is a little bit raspier than normal, so I apologize for, for that in advance. I want to get into this discussion as quick as I can, so I'm going to do a, a real quick introduction to the guest. His name is Patrick Q. Mason. You may have seen him on a recent Mormon Stories interview. You might have heard his name thrown around. He holds the Leonard Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. A quick background of of his credentials. He got a a bachelor BA in history at Brigham Young, an MA of history and international peace studies at University of Notre Dame, and a PhD of history also from University of Notre Dame. Some book credits to his name, Restoration, God's Call to the 21st Century World, The Mormon Menace, Violence and Anti-Mormonism in the Postbellum South, Planted, Belief and Belonging in the Age of Doubt, and Mormonism and Violence. So without further ado, I'm bringing on an awesome guest to the show, and this is going to be a treat for all of my listeners. Thank you for coming to chat with me, Patrick. Hey, thanks, Scott. I really appreciate the invitations. Glad to, I'm glad to be here. Anything I get wrong? Anything you want to clarify from that? Uh, from what I said just now? <laughs> no, that's that's all good. I I always apologize to journalists when they ask for my job title, and I give them this very <laughs> long thing, and they're like, ah, and I'm, I'm like, just like history professor. <laughs> <laughs> One of my motives for bringing you on to the podcast is this: the community of my typical target audiences is ex members of the church or post or nuanced members of the church. When the word apologist is thrown around, it's usually, to use a Book of Mormon reference, a hiss and a byword. <laughs> it's, it's in a really negative connotation. It's like, oh, those apologists, they're taking these, these facts that really show how the church is false, and they're trying to spin them in a different light. I've always found a really interesting similarity between the way that post members of the church use the word apologists, and maybe your most staunch believing members of the church throughout the word ex-Mormon or those that have left the church. Yeah. The way we kind of talk about each other is real similar in interesting ways. And I think it looks past the humanity of either organization or of either group of people. So I wanted to bring you on to humanize you, to show um, that there really can be communication, healthy communication between someone who believes and doesn't believe. So that's one of my, my main motivations for this. Thanks. And, and I completely agree. I, I think the, the mirroring of the discourse on both sides is really striking. And so often we, we reduce each other to positions uh, rather than really recognizing people as people. There's a couple of main ideas that I want to discuss, and I'll, I'll stop talking and I'll you know, give the floor more to you in just a sec here. <laughs> I think there's a huge audience of members, believing members of the church that don't really get catered to in 
Sunday school, in you know, general conference, and a lot of these places where they find themselves as nuanced believers, where they'll come to the table, maybe even most of the way, maybe have you know, one or two disagreements. But those disagreements can feel really big to them and alienating to them. And I don't think that that audience really has anywhere to go most of the time. A little background. In my personal life, my wife is a, an active believing member. We're a mixed faith marriage. And some of these, some of these uh, questions are born from conversations I've had with my own spouse, where she has uh, maybe some, a disagreement here or there with some of the beliefs and how she finds herself in a, in a space where she doesn't always fit, but she really wants to. Mm-hmm. And you, you wrote the book on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, one of them. I, uh, fortunately, now there's, there's a lot more resources today in, in 2022 than there were uh, a few years ago. I mean, when I, when I published Planted, that was in late 2015. It seems like a zillion years ago, but it was only seven years ago. Um, there were so few resources to to address questions of of doubt and questioning and and faith crisis or faith transition, um, especially uh, from 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 the more kind of faithful perspective. Uh, you know, I I, I think uh, it's, it's it's just a fact that that I think the um, you know people who who have questions or doubts or or the uh, more more critical uh, approaches to this, I, I think it's always been you know eclipsed where the the faithful members have been in terms of online presence and and resources and things like that and and so yeah as as of just a few years ago there was, there was so little and and I and so this is still so new to so many people and I think within the, the, the church culture, which values unity, it, it values, um, you know, some people would say, you know, conformity, which, which can oftentimes have a, a negative uh, a definition to it or, or connotation to it. But it, but, but it, but it values this, um, this sense of, of oneness. And, and so any, any sense of, of questions or somebody who isn't fully on board, somebody who, you know, expresses any kind of disagreement with uh, church leaders, especially whether, whether it be past or present. Um, it's not just seen as a kind of honest disagreement, but oftentimes it's heard and felt as a kind of threat to the community. Right. That, and, and I, I think this, this just comes out of a long history of of uh, for, for Latter Day Saints of of actually being persecuted, especially in the 19th century, and so it creates a kind of circle the wagons mentality, you know. And, and this is true of other minority populations too. This is not unique to Latter Day Saints, right? Anytime a group feels threatened, anytime a, a group feels or has has actually experienced hostility, opposition, even violence, it's natural. It's just a human, a natural human response to kind of circle the wagons and be afraid because the biggest threats to most groups uh, are usually not from the outside. They're, they're oftentimes at least perceived as being from the inside, right? It's, it's one thing for outside, you know, for people who have never been members of the church, you know, the quote unquote Gentiles, right? It's, it's, it's one thing for them to criticize. I mean, it, 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 that's almost, uh, that's actually expected 
And there's a way that that actually reinforces a kind of group identity. It's the us versus them, right? Um, so, so the fact that they're attacking us is yet another testament of, of how true we are and how we're on the right side of things. But when somebody from within raises those kinds of questions, when somebody from within expresses doubts, and then especially if somebody from within le- leaves, right, and sort of crosses the boundary, that that's actually way more destabilizing and threatening to the group than any a- attacks from the outside. One of the, in my opinion, sad elements of this is anytime someone has starts this religious deconstruction or goes through what, you know, what many people call a faith crisis. Right. They don't bring up these issues. They don't, they don't mention anything to destabilize. They're genuinely concerned and oftentimes trying to make it work. Yeah. But then they don't have anyone to talk to because if they raise their hand in Sunday school or if they, you know, bring up to their bishop, hey, I disagree with this or that, but it really marks them as an outcast and as a threat, as you're mentioning. With that being the case, there's so many people that try to make it work. They try and make this nuanced relationship with the church work. How could someone effectively communicate an unorthodox position in a healthy way that wouldn't alienate them from the group? Right. That's such a good question. And, and I love the, the kind of constructive uh, spirit behind it. Um, because, yeah, the, the, the fact is that it, as, as a community, um, we just in, in most places, we just don't do a very good job of this. We don't create, create much space for people to do it. I mean, I, I do know some wards and some places where, where this kind of healthy discussion and disagreement uh, is actually the norm. Uh, but but those, are, th- those are very few and far between, th- those kinds of wards. Um, and so, so yeah, for somebody who has those, those kinds of things, like wh- where do you do it? How do you do it? Um, I think, um, you know, the, again, every ward has a different personality and, uh, and, and you kind of got to feel that out. And sometimes it changes over time. There's always leadership roulette, you know, so you gotta, you gotta feel out, you know, Mormonism is always local, uh, just like, you know, politics is always local. So, so is religion. Uh, and so you've got to feel that out and what works in one ward may not work in even in the neighboring ward, just because of the mix of people who are in there. But, but I, I think a couple of things that I've seen really work both from my own experience and, and observing and talking with other people. One is that when people, when, when ward members really have a sense that like you are committed to the, to the community, uh, like you, you have shown up. To, to help people move, right? I mean, you, you've taught other people's kids in primary. You, you know, you, you brought a casserole to the, to the potluck dinner, right? I mean, you, all those very Mormon things, right? Um, I mean, it's like if somebody has helped me move in my piano, it's really hard for me to get mad at them, you know, if they say something that I disagree with in Sunday school, right? I mean, like, like th- there's there's a kind of capital that you that you build within a community, whether it's social capital, spiritual capital, that 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 you do build up, um, and and that, that that I think does go a long ways. Um, I think there's also uh, there has to be a kind of discernment to know. Uh, the, the right time and, and place to, to, to raise some of these kinds of things. Um, again, every, every context is going to be a little bit different. So I don't think there's a general rule. Um, I mean, I experienced this just yesterday in, in elders quorum. Uh, we were having a discussion about a general conference talk. Uh, some 
parts of the general conference talk I think are fabulous. Other parts I'm, I'm, uh, you know, kind of eyebrow raising for me a little bit. Um, and I, but, but given the way, and, and I'm very comfortable in my ward, I'm, 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 I'm well-liked, I'm well-received in, in, in my ward. So, so I feel like I have the space that I can raise things uh, when I want to. Yesterday, I just felt like um, I, I kind of let things pass. Like I, just the, the way the conversation was going, um, what I had to say, I, I'm not sure that it was going to really add anything to the conversation. It, it, it would have been... For, for me to raise my concerns would have been a kind of symbolic protest more than anything, right? I mean, it, it would have been for me, not for the group. And, and sometimes we have to do that, right, for our own authentic selves. But, but when I'm sitting in that class, it, it seems to me that's, that's a different um, – I mean, I'm, I'm participating in a community, which means that the other people in that room matter just as much, if not more, than I do. Uh, and and so I'm there to contribute to the whole. So s- sometimes I feel like you know sometimes my hand is going to go up and I'm going to offer a kind of gentle corrective or or my own uh, opinion. Other times I'm going to sit on it. Yesterday I sat on it. So so I'm, I'm going to judge the time and place. I think a lot of these conversations, um, again, frankly, the two hour block we just haven't constructed it as a as a good place to air a lot of these disagreements. So a lot of this stuff has to happen, I think, in private. Um, and, and, and I think we can create space in some of our own personal relationships. I mean, we really only have a 45 minute discussion in our elders quorum relief society, what have you, there's not a lot of time to air out all of the details of a complex situation in order to grasp it fully. I I think that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And and sometimes like there's so much like behind what I want to say. Right. I mean, like in, in terms of of the, th- the the reason why I'm not on board with with where the wagon train seems to be going. Right. Uh, with this, like it, it, it like there's so much behind that. It would be impossible for me to, to sort of reconstruct that in a 30 second comment or a one minute comment. Right. And anything beyond that is like me hijacking the class, which 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 doesn't seem fair, all that fair to the to the teacher, or to the to the other class members. I mean, it's so delicate. Right. Um, again, there are times where like my hand will shoot up because like I've just heard something that. It's it's not just that I think that it's wrong because I'm okay with people having lots of different ideas. I can be wrong about stuff, right? I mean, there's there's no guarantee that I'm that my opinion is is any better than anybody else's. But especially when I hear something that I think is harmful, um, uh, that like fundamentally um, harms people, you know. So if 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 I hear people trot out old ideas about race, if if I he- hear people trot out unfortunately, not very old ideas about gender and sexuality, right? Um, you know, if, if or, or, or about people who doubt, um, people who have questions, people, you know, or other religions, I mean, you know, kind of go down the list. If I hear things being, being, um, being talked about in class that I think are genuinely harmful to other human beings, not just to some abstract idea that reasonable people can disagree about, um, that's, that's where, you know, my hand is going to shoot up. And then, then I think part of it is then what is the tone I'm going to bring to that comment? Is it going to be a tone of castigation? Is it going to be a tone of self-righteousness? Um, or what, what I hope, I'm not always very good at this, uh, but, but I hope it's, it's a tone of humility, of, of love, of generosity, um, and recognizing that we're kind of all in this together. But hey, can, can, can we maybe do a little bit better? 
one of the struggles that my wife has had with um, her attendance has specifically been something that you just mentioned there, how in the classes, in many of the lessons, people are disparaged in a way that she disagrees with. And specifically in our own relationship where she, she has a deep love for me and an acceptance of the choices that I've made in my life. But then when she hears that being disparaged in church, it's almost like it's an attack on her and on her acceptance of me. And that's, that's really been painful for her. Yeah. I, I think her experience is probably shared times a thousand or 10,000 or, you know, I mean, however many people, uh, you know, who have been in a similar experience, my, my wife is actually really good at this in, in terms of the way that she um, will will intervene um, and, and raise her hand and make a comment. And for her, what, where I see her just being so phenomenally successful is that she will she will help people remember that we're talking about people. Right. That that it's not just a contest of ideas or, again, this kind of abstract stuff where where where, where we can again, reduce people to abstractions. But to say, hey, when you're talking about I mean, my, my wife is a convert from Catholicism and and in and, and, and her, her mom is, is still a, a really dedicated Catholic. So she said, you know, when, when you talk about other religions that way, when you talk, I mean, that's that's my mom. That, that we're talking about. Right. And, and let me tell you about my mom. Right. And, and she's an incredible person and so forth. Or when you're talking about gay people, I, let, let me tell you about my brother. Right. Um, and, and my relationship and how our relationship became better when he came out as gay. Right. And so my wife is she's just really skilled at not debating people about like these abstract abstract ideas. Um, but again, reminding people that, hey, we're talking about a human being that I love. As you're being vocal and maybe bringing up some ideas that might go against the grain or against what um, a typical, I, I, I hesitate to use the word orthodox, but uh, right. maybe somebody who is leaning heavily on the correlated material, when something is presented, and we can we can go into this idea of correlated material with the you know Sunday school lessons about church history or about maybe you know New Testament history or Old Testament history, when something is presented that you know to be factually incorrect. How do you respond to that? <laughs> right. And how should a faithful member or someone who's trying to remain part of the group respond to that? It's such a good question. And we don't have to use a specific, but just like generally there are th uh, things here or there that are twisted to be more faithful or more spiritually bent, but don't line up with history. <laughs> and this does happen occasionally, right? <laughs> That's not just a theoretical question. Uh, for, for, uh, for, for me, it's, um, again, my, my, I really try to check myself. Like I, so I try not to be like purely reactive or like have this knee jerk react, like, like the hand is going to shoot up, you know, as soon as I hear some minor historical inaccuracy. So, so I, I do try to, um, and I've cultivated this over the years. Um, uh, and so like the first question I ask myself is like, does it really matter? Right. Do, does, does this inaccuracy, does it actually matter? Uh, I mean, there, there, there are minor, you know, if, if somebody, obviously somebody gets a year wrong or something like that, most, most of the time it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, yeah. So, so we're not really talking about that, but, but so, okay. But, but let's say that, that the answer to my question to myself is, okay, yes, this does matter. Right. This, this inaccuracy uh, is something that's weighty. It's substantial. It, it, it merits, you know, some kind of correction. Then like, 
you know, all this is happening in real time. So sometimes you only have like a few seconds to really think about this because sometimes the conversation is going to move on pretty quickly. Right. But but I do try to, again, kind of have this inner conversation first is like, okay, then how do I want to frame my response? Uh, you know, because I, I want to be constructive in this place, partly because, um, again, I don't own this space. It's, it's a communal space. It's a collective space. I'm just one out of 40 people sitting in this room right now. And my, my opinion, my knowledge, my experience is no more valuable than anybody, anybody else's. But it's, I'm, I'm part of it, right? So I, I, I can't abscond that responsibility. I can't, I, can't just, I can't just wilt and retreat and say I don't have responsibility for this space because I do. It is mine. It's just not all mine. And so, uh, so, so, if, you know, so then I'm thinking like, okay, how am I going to do this in a way that's constructive? And also, in part of it, there's a, there's a kind of strategy here in the sense of thinking to myself, like, how can I actually be heard? Because again, recognizing that this is not a culture that is used to or um, comfortable with outright disagreement. Um, so how am I going to frame this in a way that, first of all, doesn't embarrass the other person? Because this is not about me putting myself above them. Um, uh, that doesn't belittle them, that doesn't condescend towards them, that recognizes their own value and their own experience. Um but then also, you know, introduces truth because supposedly, you know, we should all have a, a shared commitment to the truth. And so, so a lot of, you know, I do this inner work pretty quickly and then the hand goes up and, 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 and so hopefully then my comment is, is, is I, usually I don't want to frame it in purely oppositional terms and like you're wrong and here's the truth. Cause again, people just can't hear that at that point, people shut down. So in, instead it's, it's going to be, well, you know, here's another way to think about it or, you know, based on some some things that I've read. Right. Here. Here's another perspective. So it's it's a, it's a gentler way of doing it. It's a little less confrontational. It it, it doesn't um, it's it's not a kind of finger pointing. I, I, I don't want the, the person who shared that inaccurate thing to, to feel embarrassed. Um, I, I, I want to give them some space and grace um, to. I, I, ideally, and this has happened to, to me a lot of times, where, where somebody says, oh, wow, thanks for that. I didn't know that or I didn't realize that or I had understood that differently. Whereas if I came in with like both barrels, you know, blazing, right, they would have immediately been on the t- defensive. And so so I, you know, generally and part of this is relational, too. Again, if, if you've got some social and spiritual capital, if, if you know, if, if you've just taken them a casserole, they're more more willing to listen to you. But um, but I. Uh, so, so that's, that's generally been, again, I'm not perfect at this, not by any stretch, but when I'm at my best and, and in the, in the times where I've been successful, yes, I'm committed to the truth and, and I'm not going to let things go by that, that are harmful, that, that are there, that like, and, and I also, here's the other thing, and I know I'm kind of long winded here, but, but I don't, I don't want to build my faith or our faith collectively on a house of cards. Right. And so, like, I, I really believe this stuff. I am committed to the to, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to his doctrines. I'm committed to the restored gospel. Right. I, I, I believe in truth. And so I don't want us collectively to, like, build our foundation on a, on, on, a, on a shaky set of propositions, right? So, so if people are, are making some kind of theological point, right, if, if they're building a doctrinal understanding on something that just doesn't hold up, like, 
I'm not doing anybody any favors by continuing, like by, by allowing that, that shaky foundation, you know, the, you know, building on a house of sand, right. It, it doesn't do anybody any favor to, to, to let us keep building on a house of sand at a certain point. Right. It's like, no, let's, so that's why I want my my comment, any corrective comment that I have to be, I want it to be constructive. I don't just want it to be critical. I, I want it to be constructive and say, well, here's another way to think about it. And maybe we can maybe we can sort of build like like we we agree on this same doctrinal proposition that we're discussing, whatever it is, right? But maybe here's a more solid way to build that. Um, so I want to I want to offer a more constructive alternative, not just be critical. In stories, typically those targeted at a younger audience, everything's very black and white. There's no gray areas. There's no, there's no characters that might be a little good or a little bad. <laughs> and it's very juvenile. It's very like targeted towards a young or an immature audience. And that's fine. There, there's nothing wrong with, with that kind of story. As I was learning more about the history of the church, and this was before making the, the decision to actually leave, I viewed a lot of the problems and a lot of the issues in the way I would look at a story with more complex characters where you have this hero and then we could just, you know, as an example, we could say a, a Brigham Young or a Joseph Smith, where sure. they have clearly spots where they're doing good and clearly spots where they might be making choices that I would disagree with. And I saw them as complex, real humans rather than, than characters pulled out of a, a children's storybook. And for me, at the time as a believer, that made them more real and it made them more approachable. And as you're discussing this, I, that's, that's kind of where my mind goes with some of these comments that you're, that you're making. Well, that's, that's totally, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that, that happened for me, uh, basically once I came home from my mission and, and then took a, a class about Mormon history at, at BYU from, from David Whitaker in the history department, it was the first time that I, that I had viewed our church's history, um, uh, through a three-dimensional lens, uh, that I saw these characters as three-dimensional. I saw them as complex and flawed and sometimes tragically flawed. Um, and, and that, um, of, of, of course, there's some struggle in terms of like going through that, like shifting your narrative. Part of that, as you say, it's, it's just changing from juvenile narratives to adult narratives. So, I mean, like the books I read now, the TV shows I watch, you know, are, are more complex than they were when, when I was younger. And because, and, and I find them compelling because they represent what I experience as the real world, right? Human beings are complex. Often, look, there are some things that are like black and white, like slavery is bad, genocide is bad, right? I mean, so so I'm not a relativist uh, when 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 it comes to you know to morals. I, I think there you know there are things that are absolutely evil, but but a lot of times when it comes to human behavior and people making decisions in tough and, and tenuous and contingent situations, right? It, it is more complex than that. And, and, and we realize that as adults, I mean, one of my, um, one of my sort of complaints or one of the things I've talked about, I've, I've done in-service trainings for like institute teachers and, and other people like that. Uh, you know, other people who are teaching college aged, you know, members of the church. And, and I always tell them like, we cannot let religion be the least sophisticated part of our students' lives. 
right? So, so especially for these, you know, instructors who are teaching college age students. So this is now they're coming into adulthood. And if they're at a university, they're taking classes in history and English and, and biology and chemistry and business and, you know, education, whatever it is that they're studying, right? And they're experiencing this world of complexity and a world of nuance and a world of sometimes competing ideas, right? Uh, dialectics. Uh, and, and this is, it's enriching, it's invigorating that, you know, this is, this is part of them becoming an adult. And then, and then they go to institute um, or a religious ed class or something like that and hear the same thing that they heard when they were eight or 10 or 12 or 14, right? The same black and white narratives. And so very quickly, like religion becomes the least sophisticated part of their life and it doesn't match with the complexity of what it means to be an adult in the real world. Whereas in fact, that's the way church history always, always was. They were, they were just real people. Uh, and so, so I, I'm, I'm totally with you there that, and, and so for me then there's the historical recognition. Okay. So you got to wrestle with that. Okay. Joseph Smith is more complicated than I thought. Brigham Young is more complicated than I thought. Some of these stories that I've told were, yeah, I, I've, I've heard and, and then told and retold, uh, are more complicated than I thought. Okay. So I've got to do the historical work to change my narratives, but then I, and I think that the part we don't think about very often, but especially for believers, that there's an additional step. It's not enough just to do the complicating historical work. Now you've got to do the theological work. Now it's easy to build a theology based on black and white. It's easy to build a theology where people are always either good or bad, right? It's now you got to build a theology that's built on shades of gray. And that's a more complex task as well that I think, um, again, we've not, uh, as, as a still young religious tradition, I think we've, we've not done a, a terribly good job of, but it's necessary. So the historical work is, is oftentimes what comes first, but you got to do that theological work after that. Two questions. Hopefully I'll remember the second one. <laughs> do you, do you feel there's a space where this, this work is being done to reestablish the theology in shades of gray? Or is that something that's not really being developed yet? I, I think so. I, I think a lot more can be done. Um, but, but I see a lot of positive and healthy signs just in the past few years. So I see, uh, and some of it is is coming out sort of institutionally, and some of it is happening outside the institution. So within the institution, I really appreciate, excuse me, I really appreciate a lot of the work that's coming out of the Maxwell Institute at BYU. So for instance, like the brief theological introductions to the Book of Mormon series, uh, they're just really rich. I mean, in terms of of, of taking like scripture and, and the characters and the issues and the text. I mean, all that stuff, like really seriously, including like gender and race, it, you know, and, and, and textual like source issues, like Isaiah, you know, all these kinds of like taking this stuff seriously and then build and then doing theological work based off of that. I, I, I see, I see it as, as a really positive step forward. We, we really ha haven't had anything like that previously. And then outside the institution. So an organization that I'm on the board of and, and do, do, you know, a fair bit of work with is, is faith matters. Um, I think there's other people doing uh, really good stuff too, but I, I, I just, um, I'm drawn to, to what faith matters is doing, uh, in, in terms of, of kind of taking an unflinching look at both the history, at contemporary issues of being willed at, willing to have the hard conversations to sit in, in complex spaces and nuanced spaces, uh, but with an eye towards like, how do we, you know, are there ways that, 
without in any in any way being Pollyannish or dismissing or trivializing the problems, but also saying what what does it look like to build a life of faith um, as as an adult uh, uh, de- dealing with these these complex issues all the way f- you know from sexuality to abuse to race to to gender to you know inclusion and politics and all these you know it's like. This, this is hard stuff. This what this what it means to be an adult. So um, so I, I really like and, and have spent a lot of time with Faith Matters because because I think they're taking a really healthy approach to this. Where can our listeners find more about Faith Matters? Um, just on their website, faithmatters.org. And then they have a podcast um, uh, that uh, they, they do a great job with. And my, my most recent, uh, well, one of my most recent books, Restoration, was published with them. So they've published a couple books. And so so uh, it, it's, a, it's a new organization. It's only three, four years old. And, and so they're really still spreading their wings. One of the ways and, and a distinction I made early on, um, again, this is, I'm trying to put on my believer's cap. Yeah, I made this distinction in my mind between the the history as it happened and then the history as it's presented as historical and a mythologized version of history. And I saw that in much the same way as the scriptures were written, where many of the scriptures, New Testament, Old Testament, they're mythologized retellings of events that may or may not have happened. And in my mind, I I made that that sort of a connection between the way church expresses itself as being so very similar to the way the scriptures express themselves. And this is an issue I don't think that's unique to the LDS faith, Mormonism, um, any sort of anybody that believes in Christ or reads the the Bible with any degree of like a critical eye has to grapple with these exact same issues that an LDS, a faithful LDS person would have to grapple with. So I didn't view the historical problems in the LDS faith different than any other problem that any other Christian would have to deal with. Yep. Absolutely. You could put, pick any book, pick any scripture, and there's going to be problems wherever you look. Yep. Muslims have to deal with it. Jews have to deal with it. As you say, all different stripes of Christians have to deal with it. Um, so uh, uh, across the board, um, secularists have to deal with it in their own way in terms of like the, some of the, the leading lights of secularism have not always been, you know, paragons of morality. Well, one of the interesting things to your point with secularism, we, those that find themselves on an atheist spectrum, they say, oh, faith is horrible. You know, I'm going to rely explicitly on reason. But they don't realize that they're putting their faith in institutions. They're putting their faith in a Patrick Mason who has studied all of these things, but then they're not going to go and read it themselves. They're going to they're going to put their faith in other things and and not use their own reason or not do their own studies. And so there's there's an element of, of irony, even on the secular side, where when they they criticize a religious person for having faith when they don't realize that they're expressing faith in just a different way in so many aspects of their life. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, this is um, in some ways that, you know, that takes the conversation in a different direction, but yeah, we all express faith every day of our lives in, in all kinds of ways. I mean, I just, I just trust that that needle going into my arm actually has a vaccine that's going to do something. I trust when I step on the airplane, you know, that like, I don't actually know how these things work, but I, but I trust that other people do. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so, no, I mean, faith and trust are, are a central part of our lives, but, but I think you're exactly right. That, and, and I, I think within, um, so for Latter-day Saints, uh, and again, as you've rightly pointed out, it's not unique to us, but just sticking within the, the Latter-day Saint tradition, you know, this, um, we use the word history, um, but it actually means different things. 
All right. So history does work as theology oftentimes within the Latter-day Saint standpoint. And, and what we're doing oftentimes is we are using evidences we're using data points. We're using stories from the past, right? So that's a kind of just colloquial way that we use history, right? Ain't anything that happened in the past, right? So we use those stories, so, you know, Joseph Smith walking into a grove of trees, right? And, and having an experience, right? Um, or, you know, the pioneers crossing the plains and, you know, having certain experiences as, as they do that. And, and, and again, we use these, these evidences from the past, these stories from the past to really build actually a theological case, um, so, so when we tell those stories, especially within the community of the faithful, over a general conference pulpit, over the sacrament meeting pulpit, within a within a Sunday school lesson, we're rarely, if ever, uh, doing what historians do when we do history, right? So, so we're we're taking and, and a lot of time, I and mean, these things really did happen, like Joseph Smith from everything we can tell, really did walk into that grove of trees. Now, what happened there is, you know, a matter of faith, right? Uh, the pioneers really did cross those plains, right? I mean, you know, so so we're, we're taking these things that actually happened and, and that we can point to and that there's evidences for, but we're using them to, to, to build doctrinal or theological propositions. So it's, it's a use of the past. It's very different than what historians do when, when we approach the past in terms of looking at context, looking at competing sources, wanting to include all the different voices, um, you know, making arguments about the past that are, that are sort of kind of agnostic about, you know, normative claims or values claims um, and things like that. Those are two different things. And, and we use the same word history for both those things, just because, you know, we only have so many words in the, in the, in the English language. But in fact, those two things are very different. Now, I think they're both valid, but but they're different. And and we have to recognize that they're different. And I, I've had this this sometimes, you know, where, um, you know, so I am I'm a history professor. Uh, I'm also a member of the church. Uh, and so sometimes I'll have like ward members who will come to the classes I teach at the university on Mormon history. And they'll be like, where did Brother Mason go? Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, wait a minute, you, you sound so different than, than, than you do at church. And it's because I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a totally different context. I'm doing something different when I'm at church than I'm doing when, when, when I'm being a university professor. Now, again, when I'm in the church setting, I don't want to tell false stories. I actually think that does my faith. No, no, uh, you know, doesn't do it any favors, but, um, but I'm also, but I'm not doing what I do in the classroom and, and vice versa, right? I mean, there's, 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 there are certain kind of moves that I can make in church to think about, um, for instance, you know, the, the presence and the reality of supernatural beings, you know, forces beyond the things that we can empirically test and prove, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, uh, propositional truths or ideas that I can entertain in a church setting that I frankly can't entertain in my state university setting because I wouldn't be doing my job there. So, so they're just different genres, but we use the word history as if it's the same thing. It's, it's just not. So I want to press you a little bit. Please do. Let's focus on, on uh, the Grove and the experience that Joseph, Joseph had there. You go into a church setting and you're going to teach a lesson on the first vision. How is that different or, and similar to you teaching a lesson in your history class about the first vision? Like what sorts of what sorts of things would you say in Sunday school that you wouldn't say in a history class and vice versa? 
So for me, it's the the basic orientation is different. That when I when I'm going to church and when I'm doing that, the the primary thing that I'm interested in is I'm interested in reflecting on the relationship of God and humanity. Um, I'm interested in in thinking about and and what 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 does it mean for us to be in relationship with God, which is an article of faith, right? It, it's not something that I can empirically prove, um, but that we as a community have come together around a shared belief that there's a being that we call God, uh, the redemption comes through Jesus Christ, and that we can personally access that kind of divine power, right? Um, so, so when I'm teaching the lesson about the first vision in church, I actually might do, I mean, me, my, my, myself, like Patrick, Patrick Mason, I, I may actually do a lot of things that look very similar. Like I would be totally comfortable if I'm teaching that first vision uh, class in church to say, hey, Joseph Smith talked about this four different times in four different ways, right? Here's what he said in 1832. Here's what he said in 1835. Here's what he said in 1838. That's the one you all know. Here's, the, here's what he said in 1842. Look, let's look at the differences. Let's look at the similarities of this. Like, what is this? For me, then the question is, what does this tell you about the way that God relates to us and we relate to God? That's the question that I'm asking there, okay? It's around a shared, again, we, the, the, the very fact that we've walked into this classroom together we voluntarily walked in and, and there's a kind of shared presumption. Again, it's, and, and it's tough if somebody does, doesn't share these presumptions. But, but at least I, 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 I walk into that classroom um, feeling like that, OK, we're generally committed to the idea that there's a God in heaven um, uh, who, who communicates and has a relationship with, with human beings. When I'm at the university, so again, I may do something. In fact, when I teach Mormon history, I always do this. When, when I teach Joseph Smith, we go through the four accounts of the first vision, right? But there I'm not interested in the God question. Like, um, I, now I am interested in, okay, what does this tell us about pe how people in the past thought about God? Right. What glimpse does this give us of the early 1800s? Exactly. I, I'm like, and and if students are doing this own kind, their own kind of internal work, fine. I mean, that's that's fine for them privately. But what we're doing in the classroom is we're studying how human beings in the early 1800s work. So so humanity is front and center there. The way that humans construct their reality, the way that humans construct this thing that we call religion, right? Those so so like the human being is front and center in my history classroom, whereas the relationship of humans and God are front and center in, in church. I love that response. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I want to shift a subject just a little bit. This sort of a conversation between someone who's left the church or to even a target audience, my typical audience are people that don't believe anymore or that have, they're trying to understand their relationship with the church after having gone through a faith crisis or in the middle of a faith crisis. So this sort of a conversation of bringing an apologist in are you okay with the term? I, I guess I didn't ask you this off the bat. Do you like the term apologist? Like, <laughs> can I refer to you as that? What do you want me to call you? I, I don't care what people call me. Uh, I've been called. <laughs> I've been called. I've been called far worse uh, than an apologist. I mean, it, 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 for me, it, it depends. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, uh, as as you're, you can tell, I can always turn a simple question into a long winded answer. No, this is great. So for me, it, it depends on what part of me you're talking about, 
So, so, so some of the books, uh, I, I think you, in, in your introduction, you mentioned like four of the books uh, that I've written. So, but two of those that you mentioned, Restoration and Planted, those are written for the church. Those are works of apologetics. Those are me as a believer coming from a position of belief, using my rational faculties in combination with, with, my, with my belief, with my faith, and making arguments for the faith. Right. That's what apologetics is. Right. There's. Yeah. It's like a well thought out response to a criticism or a problem. Exactly. I mean, for, for me, it's just putting like faith in conversation with reason. Um, uh, so, so I, you know, I, I think any person who's a believer should do, engage in apologetics in the sense of like you should be able to come up with reasons for your belief. Right. Um, that's all apologetics is. Um, whereas those the, the, the other books that you mentioned, those are works of scholarship that are peer reviewed uh, for the secular academy. Anybody regard like to, to, to really like fully engage my apologetics work. Again, you, you, you've got to. I, I make some presumptions there, like that God is real. <laughs> right. You know, and 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 so some of the the intellectual and even the rational work that I'm doing in that apologetic mode still is built upon a foundation of faith, right? Um, when, I, when I'm doing work for the secular academy, uh, it presumes nothing, right? It presumes, uh, it doesn't presume anything about your orientation to God, the cosmos, Mormonism, anything like that. The, the scholarship that I do there is accessible to anybody just using their faculties of reason. And so that stuff is not apologetics. Like that's me being a historian, a scholar. And again, this has been peer reviewed by Cambridge University Press, Oxford University Press, right? They don't have a dog in the fight. Uh, you know, and, and actually if I was doing apologetics, they wouldn't publish my stuff. Um, and so if people say Patrick Mason is an apologist, yes, that's true for some of my writings, but that's not true for Mormonism and violence. It's not true for the Mormon menace. It's not true for my textbook on Mormonism, right? So, so, so for my my public persona, part of it is church oriented, kind of apologetics. Part of it is is just purely scholarly uh, and secular. Well, as we said earlier, one of the themes of our discussion has been people are multifaceted. Yeah, and you present both as an apologist or more to the secular world. You have there are multiple aspects of of Patrick Mason, right? <laughs> Let me rephrase the question that I was about to say that got us off on this tangent. <laughs> you, as, as someone who at times puts on this apologist hat, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> is there value in a conversation like the one that we're having, where someone who, who holds very different ideas about not what happened in church history, but implications on belief from what happened in church history, where two people who see the same events come to different conclusions? Is there value to a conversation like this? 100%, like 200%. I mean, you're like, yeah, yes. And why? Like, what is that value? Like, why, why, should, why should I bring you on to have this conversation in a respectful way? You know, and, and I, I, the, the flip side of that is like, why should I come on? Right. I mean, so, so yeah. So, so why, should, why should the two of us be doing this? It's for me, it's really nothing more complicated than the fact that we're both human beings, right? That we, we share this planet. We are in this thing together. Um, I know that oftentimes, and and it would be convenient for us to silo ourselves. It would be convenient for us to, I don't know, you know, get in some wagons and go out into the desert and <laughs> pretend like the rest of the world didn't exist, right? Trying to establish your own theocracy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That is not the world that we live in, in in the 21st century. We are so interconnected. We are interdependent. We have relationships with each other, 
right? And so, I, I mean, I mean, you you live it every day in terms of your marriage, but 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 all of us live this every day, right? We none of us live uh, in perfect isolation, and so we have to have these conversations, like and and like. Again, I, I think there's a time and a place, right? And and sometimes, right? I mean, sometimes it just doesn't feel good, especially you know, like publicly. I mean, so, so again, people can exercise prudence and, and discernment in terms of the kinds of conversations they want to have when and where and with who. But in just as a general principle, I just believe that actually one of the dangers that we have, I mean, we, it, it's a danger within our broader society that we don't talk to each other across various lines, faith lines, ideological lines, political lines, right? Um, we just, this is what social media does. It, it promised to connect it, to, to connect us. All it did was fragment us, right? Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I think it's, it's the number one problem we face as a, as a society. I also think it's, I think it's one of the biggest problems we face within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I think my religion is poorer if I'm not in conversation with people who don't believe what I believe. Um, that uh, and and I'm enriched by talking with people of other faiths. I'm enriched by people uh, talking with people of no faith. I'm enriched by people talking who sh- who once shared a faith that I have who have left, and I want to know why. Why? Because because I. Um, and I feel like I can do this. I feel like you and I can like very comfortably have this conversation because like I know who I am. Like, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Do I know everything? No. I mean, uh, I, I don't, I don't claim to, but like, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty comfortable in my own skin, but that allows me, it's, it's that confidence that I have, I hope not arrogance. I hope, hope not overbearing. I hope, I hope not being like closed off to new ideas, but, but a kind of confidence yeah, thank you. And I, and I hope not. I don't want to, I never want to project that because I really am like, I'm super interested in other people. I'm super interested in other people's ideas. Like, like I'll read articles sometimes about Mormon history, like oftentimes from like a critical perspective or like a new perspective. I'm like, holy cow, I'd never thought about that before. Like, that's such an awesome way to think about this. Right. So like, I'm, um, so I, I'm interested on a, both an intellectual level because I just love ideas and, and I, I want to believe the truest things. I want to believe the best things. Why, why would I want to believe like a second rate idea? Right. That, that you know, um, so I want my ideas to be tested. I want them to be pushed. I want them to be refined. Um, I, if somebody challenges me, like, you know, uh, th- then I want to kind of work through that. But also it's like even more important than the, than the intellectual side of it is the human side. Like I value you, right? I want to know who you are, what makes you tick, where you're coming from, um, and and I hope that you'll reciprocate, right? Uh, uh, and and I think this is what it means to be a human. This is what it means to be in community. And we um, we are not good at this in 2022. So that's why I'm so appreciative of you modeling this. I mean, this is what it looks like. Again, I'm so grateful that you came on to have this conversation. The impetus really for the tone that I set in my podcast is the conversations that I've had with my spouse. Yeah. Learning something new and and reacting with like a visceral, angry or frustrated reaction. And I'd go to her with it and I'd see her reaction to how upset I was. And it, it just was not a constructive conversation. And so anytime that I came to her more collected and calm and hey here are my problems what do you think about it and i was much more careful with the way that i worded um 
my complaints or the issues, our conversations were so much healthier and they brought us closer. Honestly, our my religious deconstruction helped she and I learn how to communicate in ways that we had never learned mm. before. Mm. And that really Because you had to was, talk about hard things, right? Yeah. Yeah. We had to talk about hard things. We had to establish, yes, we love each other, but we disagree on this or that. That pattern that she and I set in our relationship really has influenced the way that I try and do my podcast, where I might make a harsh claim, or I might say, this fact could lead to this implication, but it doesn't have to. You could look at it in a different way. And I try and couch most of the um, claims that I make in that sort of a, a language. Well, and, 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 and to, be, um, to be in relationship with people, to value the relationship, to, to, to be friends is not to, to treat each other like, you know, we're always just walking on eggshells. Right? I mean, actually, to, 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 I mean, a really healthy marriage can sustain like healthy disagreements, right? And, and, and truth telling. So, um, so, so, you know, I, it is, I, I always value the relationship more than I value the issue. Um, uh, but hopefully that relationship is strong enough that that it can allow an honest airing of the issues. So you might have answered this next question a little bit through our our discussions that we've had. In your career as an LDS historian, you're working hand in hand with with his other historians in a secular space that are both believers and non-believers. As a believer, how do you communicate with a non-believer historian about church history? And how could that influence the way that someone like you and I could come to those same issues and have a discussion? Yeah. So, I mean, my whole training as a historian, you know, going and getting graduate degrees and and coming up through the ranks as a, as a faculty member and so forth. I mean, um, we, we call history a discipline um, because, uh, you know, just like any other academic discipline, because it disciplines our thinking. It disciplines the way that, that that we go about, you know, weighing evidence, presenting evidence, making arguments. I mean, I, I had to learn all this stuff. Nobody comes out of the womb knowing how to be a historian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so I, I had to go to a lot of years of school to become a, a half decent one. And um, and and but this is, I think, the brilliance of the secular academy is that we've built all of these disciplines in a way that, again, your personal beliefs about something are largely, if not entirely, irrelevant. I, I wouldn't say entirely because there's no such thing as pure neutrality, pure object, objectivity, right? I mean, we all come from a position. But when I'm working within the framework of the discipline of history that I learned alongside evangelicals and Catholics and Jews and secularists, right? The, the, the way that we thought about God and the cosmos does not affect the way that we operate within a history seminar or, or between the pages of a peer-reviewed historical manuscript, right? We've learned it, what it is, is it's a shared conversation. So, so the, 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 the professional field of history, it's a shared conversation that we can all enter into um, and have these really productive conversations. And then we can go back to, I mean, you can theologize however you want about whatever we talked about, but um, but but we do have a common language. Um, you know, this is what we used to do in our democracy as well. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you can believe all kinds of things when you come into the public square, right? I mean, you know, there's certain ways that we talk and interact with one another which are constructive. So, so actually, so it's it's one of the things I love, for instance, about the Mormon History Association that I'm involved with a lot. So, I mean, this is a professional 
scholarly organizations that, that has LDS and non-LDS and ex-LDS and never LDS and, you know, people in it, people who are just interested in Mormon history. And whatever you think about, you know, what, what Joseph Smith saw in that grove or whether you think the gold plates are real, whether you think that there were actual Nephites, it is actually immaterial to to the historical work that you're doing on on whatever your you know what whatever your historical topic is. So actually MHA Mormon History Association has been a great space where believers and non-believers and former believers and believers of other sorts um, have come together just around a shared academic interest in Mormon history. It's actually you know it's it's a pretty beautiful model and it's a beautiful community. Not perfect. We have our disagreements, but you know but but we've got non-LDS people oftentimes serving as president of the organization, you know, and, and officers and, you know, and all these kinds of things. And again, be, because we're operating in this shared historical space, those personal beliefs, frankly, don't matter very much. So help me get a glimpse of this. You know, you're, you're rubbing shoulders with someone who might be ex-LDS and maybe their own views of the church um, are very disparaging of the leadership or the direction. You're rubbing shoulders with them and that does not influence the way you work together? No, because the the standard is how are you um, uh, are, are are you doing what historians are supposed to do, right? So so if somebody came in to to MHA and just did like a rant about the the ten things they hate about the LDS Church, let's just say they would not be invited back to give another paper the next year, or or they they would have to prove in their abstract that they were going to. I mean, you know, there, there's a whole process where you've got to submit a proposal of what you're going to do and and get accepted, right? So it becomes pretty clear, right? Is are are they doing history? Now it's it's fine if they want to go do their rant thing. Fine, you, you can go do that anywhere. Or if you want to go bear testimony on the other side, right? So it's not a place for people to come bear testimony of how true the church is either. Um, if you're doing that, you're not going to get invited back again either. I mean, again, you can attend, but but in terms of the papers that are being presented, right? It's like, um, have you done your research? Have you done all of your research? Right? Not are you just cherry picking the facts that support whatever position you want to make. But have you have you really done the work? Have you done have you gone into the archives? Have, have you looked at all the evidence? And then are you making a reasonable argument? That doesn't mean that nobody can disagree with you, right? Reasonable people can look at the same set of evidence and come up with different arguments. But but again, it's working within um, you know, it's it's like any sport or anything, anything else. I mean, there's certain rules of the game that you know, if you're if you're playing football, you don't get to bring a bat onto the field, right? Uh, uh, and and so there are certain rules that define what the sport is. In that space, we're being historians. We're not being um, either testimony bearers or um, you know or uh, of of either sort. Uh, I love how you frame this as a game. I feel like we're talking about two very different games. We're talking about both the secular historian lens of viewing church history. Yeah. And now I kind of want to wrap it up and and maybe focus a little bit more on this other game, this game of of a personal life and a personal belief, and maybe see if there's any overlap of the way these interactions go in the secular field might um, help someone in their personal lives um, in this other game. So many people that listen to these podcasts, they've gone through a faith crisis, they're going through a faith crisis or a truth crisis or, or, or reinventing themselves, finding out exactly what they believe because they've learned something new that has shaken up their whole worldview. 
we come to the table with our families. We sit, you know, Thanksgiving just passed. And by the time this comes out, it's probably going to be right before Christmas. We're going to go and we're going to be sitting with our loved ones who hold dramatically different views than we do now. Or, you know, on your, on your side, you know, if you came to my house and we had a conversation, you'd be coming to the table with someone who holds different views than you do. What can we learn from these interactions that you have on this secular field where believers and non-believers can come together? And how could we better communicate with our family and loved ones in these sort of intimate situations that I'm describing? Yeah, so important. I would say a couple of different things. So first of all, especially in these interpersonal things, so it's, it's one thing to be a professional historian, right? And we come, we go to our conferences and we all go home, right? I mean, so it's, it's, it's your day job, literally. Um, but, but families are not a day job, right? I mean, they're, you know, these relationships are so much more important than what we do professionally. And they really matter in these, these relationships that last a long time. So, so I, I really, truly believe um, that the first principle is that the relationship is more important than the issue. And that, that the most important thing we do when we sit across the table or sit, sit around a, you know, a living room with, with people that we disagree with is we remember that we have to see people as people. And with, with hopes and with fears and with experiences and with different kinds of knowledge and all those kinds of things. And, and so those relationships matter more than the particular points of disagreement and that these are real human beings that we're not, that, that we're talking to that, that when I'm, um, and, and, and that when they espouse a position, um, I want to, to hear them through the most generous version of that, not through the worst version of that. Um, I, I want to recognize that this, this is a person who this, this belief, whatever's coming out of their mouth, whatever they're saying, whatever they're committed to, there's a reason for this. And that they're a person that, that they're, they've invested hopes into this, or they've experienced things that, 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 that are very real traumas that, that led them, you know, to, to go a different way. So I'm, I'm, I'm just more interested in the person frankly. Um, and the, and now, and, and as part of caring about that person, I'm going to care about the things that make up that person, which includes their beliefs and includes their, their pain and their experiences. So I want to know that, but I'm, I'm refracting it through my care for the person, not my desire to score points over uh, a, a particular issue. So, so that's the first thing. But then the second thing in terms of kind of lessons that we might be able to bring again, the family dinner table should not be like a history conference. I mean, that would be like, that would be horrible. Um, there's a reason why people go home after a conference, right? Um, uh, but, but there's something to, especially when we are in families or social groups where, where people are of clearly just really conflicting and divergent opinions that that there's something to be said for creating a middle space that allows people to have a kind of shared language um but where they can coexist with one another uh and so what that might mean is not bringing all of your artillery to you know to to, to that moment it, it might mean leaving something unsaid it, it, it might mean not going there. Um, 
uh, and it, or it might mean you know presenting what you have to say in um, in a way where you are thoughtfully in, in a kind of do no harm mode, right? So um, you know, I th- th- this is true in in my family. So on, on my wife's side again, like I mentioned, she's the only member of of, of the church, and so. So when we talk about religious stuff, so first of all, we don't talk about religion all that much. Um, uh, when, when we do, we're careful and we use neutral language as much as we can. We, we kind of talk descriptively rather than theologically, because, again, we, we, we know that the best way for us to preserve our relationships is not to be screaming at each other over abstract religious ideas. Um, uh, I've also got, you know, people on, on my side of my, my family who, you know, have very different relationships to the church and um, the family dinner table is not the place for barren testimony or for other things. So we we just a- a- agree that um, what we're doing there as a family is is more important than um, some of the particular beliefs that we as individuals might bring um, to, to, to that context. And, and, and I know that's tough because sometimes people feel silenced, right? People feel like, oh, I can't be my full self. I can't be my whole, my, my true authentic self when I go to grandma's house. Well, um, maybe, <laughs> you know, um, maybe your relationship with grandma is more important than your disagreement with the church. Um, or maybe your relationship with your sister-in-law is more important than testifying to her of why she needs to come back to church or something like that, that, that it, that it may be, you know, relationships are long. Life is long. If you're a Mormon, like I am, eternity is long, right? We have a long time to sort some of this stuff out. Uh, doesn't all have to get hashed out over, over the, the Christmas dinner table. So many of us come from family systems where the LDS faith is so ingrained in the traditions and in every aspect of the, of, of the culture in our specific families, where in my experience, you know, I go to a Thanksgiving or I go to a Christmas and religiosity is front and center of almost the entire discussion or the entire event. And as you said, it can feel silencing for someone who doesn't fit the mold. Even if you know, for someone who maybe believes most of the way and they're nuanced or spiritually independent, but still attending because they you know believe X, Y, and Z, I mean, it can feel silencing because they cannot express themselves fully. There's such an audience of people that don't get catered to in many of these discussions and, and exist in these in-between spaces where they, they want to be part of the discussion, but they, they could never say their full ideas. And, and part of that is, I guess, learning when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to be open with your ideas. You know, you're not going to sit through a nativity and nitpick all of the historical inaccuracies of reading through both the Matthew and the Luke together. (laughs) I'm saying for personal experience of like being frustrated when I first learned the history and sitting through a family nativity and like every single one of these things can't be true. And (laughs) we go through these events and, and part of it is learning when to have that discussion, when not to have that discussion. And honestly, many times, if it's in that full group or that full family situation, I don't feel like that's the right place. 
it's more in those intimate one-on-one discussions where you can maybe be more open about um, your disagreement. And that's kind of harkens back to what you had said um, in those discussions within the church setting or within the walls of the church where something you might say in front of um, just your, your closest friend in the hallways of the church isn't going to be exactly the same as what you would say in front of the whole elders quorum or, you know, over the pulpit on, on Sunday. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And I, and I think, um, that this is where families are so hard and so instructive because they, uh, they're comprised of individuals. Um, but the end indiv- like the, the family is, is greater than just the sum of the individuals, right? The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so, um, and that can be very frustrating <laughs> as an individual, right? But, but I also see, and I've seen this so many times that, that when that, as, as you say, that kind of private, intimate conversation happens either before or after that nativity or that Christmas gathering, right? What, what it might mean is that next year's might look a little different. Right. I mean, the um, so, so part again with families, with relationships, with friendships, it's always about the long game. It's not about like, can I just score tactical points right now? <laughs> right. It's, it's like, what is like I'm 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 committed to these people and they're committed to me for the long run. Right. And so so maybe I'm, I'm going to hold my tongue <laughs> this this year, this dinner. Right. And then I'm going to have some private conversations after this, some one-on-ones or, you know, something like that, where I'm going to talk to mom and dad, or I'm going to talk to my siblings or whoever, whoever needs to be, you know, and I'm just going to share, Hey, wow, I've, I really felt uncomfortable there. And here's why. And, and so forth. Well, maybe next Christmas is going to look different, right? Uh, or three Christmases from now or five Christmases from now or, and, 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 um, and, and it's hard. It's, it's hard to be patient. It's hard to feel like the, you're, you're the outlier. It's hard to feel like you're the, the only, you know, the only one. And especially if there's layers of judgment, right. Or of like, you know, like passive aggressive stuff, which Mormons, you know, specialize in. It's a, it's like, okay, so who's going to read Luke two this year? Oh, it's the one who, who le- just left the church, right? Okay, Scott, why don't you read Luke two for us this year? Right. In the hopes yeah, of like, exactly. this is the moment that the spirit descends upon you and converts you. Right. So look, you, you just, so much of that stuff happens, right? So much of this silliness happens uh, and, and it can be petty. It can be, you know, usually it's not met malicious. Sometimes it is right. Um, but usually it's not. And so it's like, okay, can I, can I hang in there this year for these two or three or four hours and then have some conversations to get in and do some of that hard work uh, that relationships require, have some of those hard, hard conversations and, and we'll see if maybe the next family gathering is, you know, people are a little more sensitive. In many of your previous conversations, you have hesitated to use the word cult to describe the LDS church. And I agree with you. I don't think that that's a helpful term. Would you be okay with describing it as a high demand religion? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, this, this is where I, I agree with Joseph Smith. I mean, I, th- I think religion is supposed to be high demand. Um, and, and I think, I think almost anything in this world that is worth it is high demand. I think families are high demand. I think careers are high demand, uh, friendships are high demand. And so, um, yeah, is Mormonism a high demand religion? Yes. And that is part of its strength. It's part of what has, um, made it what it is today in terms of all the good ways, 
Um, but there are also, um, there, there, there's a underside of that as well. And, and I think we, um, those, those of us who are in the church and committed to it, um, even at a kind of high demand type level, uh, we just have to be so much better, uh, and empathetic to recognize that, that those, those high bars, those high standards, the, you know, what's required of people, it's not going to work for everybody that it leaves people out. It, it sometimes hurts people. Um, and so it's, it's again, going back to what we said earlier, it's so much easier to be black and white. Um, it's it, the, I think the much harder thing to do is to say, yes, I'm part of a high demand religion. I, I appreciate, I, I think there's value in, I, I think those, all that high demand stuff does real work. And it, and it produces a lot of goods, um, but there are costs to it as well. In in a world of of real people, real human beings with complicated lives, there are costs. And what are the ways? I think we constantly have to be asking ourselves, what what are the costs? What what what? Who are we leaving behind? Who are we who are we hurting? Who is not? You know, um, when we set this standard, um, are, are are there ways that it's um, uh, th- th- that it's actually leading people towards some outcomes that, that of course we, we don't want. Is it leading to anxiety and depression and to shame and to guilt and, and these kinds of things? And so, so what can we, you know, I, it has to be a, just an act of constant recalibration, um, and, and to recognize, and, and that we just to keep our finger on the pulse of like, just the individuals around us, right? What's this doing within my family dynamic? What's this doing if I'm a, if I'm a youth leader? What's this doing to the kids? Okay, it's working for these three kids over here, but this one I can tell it's not working for. So, so what does that look? I mean, we just we just have to pay attention to the people in front of us um, because I just really believe what Jesus said that um, the, that the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. Um, so all of this stuff, all the high demand stuff. Um, it's meant to serve some human goods, um, and but we have to we have to be sensitive to to the times that it doesn't. I think that some of the biggest strengths within the church and some of the most good that it does are on that local, interpersonal level, and I think that's where some of the most good is happening around the world within the LDS faith. And, but there, but there are people that it doesn't serve well, right? Of course, and of course. and um, so, uh, you know, it's probably not. I mean, you know, the the church serves some people really well, other people less well. Um, and again, I, I, the the um, you know, for, for the 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 people for whom it like they just don't connect with it at all. I, I, you know, that's that's one thing, right? You know, it's it's a voluntary thing. It's not a theocracy anymore. Uh, you know, so, so, you know. Um, so, but it's the um, so I'm I'm not all that worried about people that it, like it just doesn't connect with and they leave and like they just move on with their lives, right? I'm far more concerned about the people who've experienced some kind of harm. Um, and we could go down the list of, of categories and individuals for whom that's the case. And that's where, um, just internally we have to, we have to do better. I appreciate you saying that. I, uh, I mean, I, I know you don't speak for the institution itself, <laughs> right? Right. You know, you don't represent the church and they're grateful for it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants me to be the church spokesman. <laughs> 
I just I just think it's important to for those that have left the church to recognize that there are members still in who know the problems and who are sensitive to the harm that it has done. It's important for people to feel seen. Yeah. So I, I think that's very important what you just said. I am so grateful for this opportunity to chat with you. This has been, for me, an excellent conversation. I would love to bring you back on and maybe discuss specific things, that's like, you know, maybe specific topics down the road. Sure. If that's something that you're interested in. I'm happy to. Yeah. I hope to have um, conversations where we could uh, respectfully disagree with each other, you know, look at something like the first vision, talk about things, and then have a conversation about what implications we draw from the events or from whatever the specific um, idea would be. I think that could be interesting for listeners to see a conversation where people might disagree with something and, uh, and how that would play out. No, that'd be great. I, I think we need so much more of that just modeling of what healthy disagreement looks like. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. Is there anything, any last remarks, anything you want to leave the listeners off with? No, thank you, Scott. I, I really appreciate this opportunity and, and appreciate the um, just the, um, the the open and warm spirit uh, that that you cultivate here. So um, so good luck to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you again to Patrick for giving me his time to have this chat. It was so constructive. Patrick brings to the table a very unique perspective. To this community where he both is aware of the issues that the church faces historicity and what have you but he comes to it from the faithful perspective i'm so grateful that he came on to my show where we focus <laughs> typically on the less faithful faithful perspective and we were able to have such a constructive conversation as I said down the road, I would love to have more conversations with Patrick where we might be able to dig a little deeper into specific subjects and talk about implications and different different ways to look at these issues. As always, in a, in a respectful way, recognizing that he and I are both humans and it's okay that we can disagree. I also hope that this episode might have catered a little bit more towards an audience that doesn't get discussed quite as often nuanced believers or spiritually independent members of the church that want to participate, are aware of the problems, but don't always feel seen. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today. Wherever you find yourself out there, staying up late wrapping Christmas presents while the kids are asleep, I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>